Welcome to the workshop, Long Timers, Barnacles of OA, Win with the Stickers. My name is Kara. I'm a compulsive overeater and the moderator for this session. Before we begin, please turn off your cell phones and pagers. This workshop is being taped. All opinions expressed by those who share are their own and not necessarily those of OA as a whole. The format for this session is a reading, two speakers, There'll be an ask it basket questions and a sharing on the topic. A basket with paper and pencil will be circulated for you to write any questions you may have for the speakers. Please specify whom your question is for. And uh, the reading is from Voices of Recovery, um, October 21st. We offer our own hope, our own courage, and our own experiences. From Beyond Our Wildest Dreams, page 33. Hope was the first gift I was given. When my sponsor put her arms around my obese, smelly body, she said, it never has to hurt like this again. In spite of my doubts, I felt hope. With that hope came courage. A deep inner courage resides within each of us. The disease has told us for so long that we don't have enough courage, but that is another of its lies. Tapping into that courage requires only the tiniest bit of willingness to change, to take a chance that the literature and people with long-term abstinence are telling the truth, and that we deserve recovery. Our experiences are our gift to the newcomer, and a reminder of how far we've come. I keep coming back because people are there for me when I need them most. It is a privilege to help keep the doors open and the lights on. Someone like I used to be is bound to walk in one day needing to hear, it never has to hurt like this again. Okay. Our first speaker is Nanette from West Hollywood, who will speak for 25 minutes. My name is My name is Nanette. I'm a compulsive overeater. Um, I came to OA 30 years ago uh, this month. It took me eight years to get abstinent. I was abstinent eight times in eight years. I was abstinent three days, four days, five days, and 15 days, 17 days, uh, 21, 27, 23, and. Um, I now have 22 years and a half of abstinence. Um, basically, I came to OA to lose some weight so I could catch a man who would then fix me. And um, I went to three to four meetings a week, and lots of times after the meetings, I would eat enormous amounts of food to get rid of the feeling of having been in a meeting. And it wasn't that I didn't like you or anything, and I didn't articulate it to myself at the time, but I always ate for relief. I would just relax. An example of how I ate would be um, this place where I worked, I had a 45-minute lunch period. I would fix the brown bag lunch um, and then take it to work, and then by lunchtime it would be too boring to eat. So I would abandon that lunch and I'd go to the cafeteria in the building. And I'd choose, like, one main entree grease and two side greases. <laughs> and I'd eat that, and then I'd have that sense of relief. 
but I always was a fast eater, so there'd be more time left to my lunch period. So then I'd go to the first floor where they had this place where they sold newspapers, chewing gum, and pre-made sandwiches. And I'd get two of those, and then I would tear the crust off the two sandwiches and then eat the sandwich, and then that would be that. And then I would go back to my desk, and that would be the lunch that I had abandoned, and then I ate that. And so I, I guess I didn't get that I had 45 minutes for lunch. I thought I had to eat for 45 minutes. <laughs> and then I'd feel awful, and I would have to suck in my stomach and sit, try to sit behind my desk at all times for the rest of the day. And if I had to get up to go to the, um, the files or something, I'd have to suck it in and then get back to my desk and relax and let out my tummy. And so that's how it was. Um, because I hung around OA, I met members of OA who were also members of AA. And one of them was speaking at an AA meeting. And of course, I knew that AA was the origin of the species. It was where the big boys were. It was uh, the mainstream 12-step program. So I was invited to go with a group of people to hear her speak, this AAOA member. And it was like a big adventure to go to AA. And I thought there'd be like eight men in trench coats and a bare light bulb in a room. <laughs> and when I got there, it was this enormous speaker meeting, maybe twice the size of this one. It was audience style. And as we got there during the break time. And I could just feel the energy in the air. It was like it was thick. I could feel it on my face, this, this vitality. And there were people of varying uh, ages, sizes, and conditions but all of them looked clean and neat and cool. They were hip slick and cool, and I was attracted to these people. And I started to seek out AA meetings, and the way I found them, I'd be at my OA meeting on a certain night, and I would hear somehow that there was an AA meeting there Monday nights. So I'd show up on Monday nights, and there would be like another city. And um, I kept going to these meetings, and eventually I, I kept seeing this one particular sober alcoholic at these meetings, and um, we struck up a relationship, which is like mission accomplished. I came to OA to get a guy, and there he was. And for those of you who happen to know my husband, it's not him. <laughs> and, uh, but we didn't have a very smooth relationship. It was on again, off again, blow us, misunderstandings, walking out, that kind of stuff. And so people... I heard about another 12-step program for friends and families of alcoholics, and I eventually went there. I went there to get some handy hints on how to manage him better. <laughs> and um, somehow I hit a bottom at that other 12-step program. And bottom for me is not what gets you to the program, but it's what makes you become willing and teachable. And I didn't have much success in OA, and suddenly I became willing and teachable. I took directions. I got a sponsor. I never said no to a program request. And I remember after I'd been in the other 12-step program for a year, I was asked to lead a meeting. At this particular meeting, the leader shared for three to five minutes. It was a very short share. But I was a really shy person. I mean, I was so shy that um, in school I would drop out of a class and then do an oral book report or I'd take an F. I mean, there's no way I would do something in front of somebody. And here I had to share three to five minutes. And I went to my sponsor, and I told her that I had to share, and I didn't know what I could possibly share. 
And she said, has the program helped you? And I said, yes. She said, then you have something to share. And suddenly I got it. If you've gotten something, you have something to give back. And it doesn't matter whether you know what you have to give back or not. If you've gotten something, you have something to give back. That's a given. And so I shared at that meeting, and it was just fine. And um, so every time I lead a meeting, I know I've changed, because I think five minutes have passed already, and I'm still up here. Um, I came back to OA about 23 years ago. And I had gone to um, Weight Watchers with a friend, and um, I was there to support her. But when I got to the meeting, they had a sign on the table that said, no visitors. So for me to sit next to her, I had to join. So I joined Weight Watchers for $15 just to sit next to her. But since I joined, they shoved a stack of literature into my hands. They put me on the scale, and I weighed more than I ever weighed in my life. And so since I had joined inadvertently, I thought, I'll give this diet a try, even if it's a half-assed try. And my history with diets is really dismal. It's generally um, two days average, three days max. Even the diet that I devised myself that I thought I could do, I could never commit and do it. And so miraculously, I started to lose weight and um, for about four to five months. And then it then I couldn't do it anymore because it was a weight and measured diet. And I was starting to buy clothes off the rack and I had always sewed my whole life. I made my own clothes except for underwear and sweaters. But I just made everything. It was A-line dress. I mean, it's just a moo-moo thing. I mean, that's just the way I was. It was. So I came back to OA because I didn't want to lose it. I did. I had such a transformation in my other 12-step program that I knew 12-step programs worked. So I came back to OA to get a permanent solution to my overeating problem. But this time I had a really rough time. I didn't like OA. I didn't like you. I would have to go to my other 12-step program, get grateful so I could come to OA. <laughs> then I'd hate you all over again, have to go to the other 12-step program, get, get grateful, and then come back. And it happened for about a year. And I felt... But I was kind of miserable at home because I was trying not to eat, but it was a white knuckle type thing. It wasn't any kind of recovery. And um, then I was making everybody miserable around me. And then I realized what I had to do. I had to work 12 steps because that's what it's, it's a 12-step program. And I had learned, I had worked 12 steps in the other 12-step program, and I knew you start with step one. And that's when I discovered that I couldn't do step one because it says I'm powerless over food and my life has become unmanageable. I got the unmanageable part okay, but I couldn't, I didn't believe I was powerless over food. I knew I ate crazy, that was one thing. And I thought you were just calling this a disease because uh, it was a working definition so you could work 12 steps like the AAs. But I couldn't, so I had to write about it and what I wrote what came up to me is that I felt I had personal power to hold my weight down because I was afraid of weighing 200 pounds. That was a big, scary number for me. So I was using my personal power to hold my weight down. That was where the power was. It wasn't that I didn't eat crazy, ate too much, binged, all that. I, I was using the power to hold my weight down. And you were saying that I had to be powerless over food in order to recover. In other words, I had to weigh... 200 pounds in order to recover because I had no more power. Or 
I can uh, not weigh 200 pounds and use my power and never recover. So if I catch 22. So I knew I had done that step before, so I tried to say, well, how did I do it before with the other 12-step program? I was told that for me to ask an alcoholic not to drink was like for me to ask a tubercular not to cough. The guy who has TB has to cough because that's what his disease made him do. If every time he coughed, he said, this is the last time I'm going to cough. I will never cough again. I'm going to work 12 steps and never cough again. If he says that, he is saying, one, I don't have a real disease, and two, I have power. Well, I know that you, you are totally powerless over a cough. And, and not only are you powerless over a cough, you are also blameless. So I had to translate that to overeating, that it was perfectly okay for me to binge and overeat because that's my cough. I tried doing the step one many other times, wrote about it, talked about it, all sorts of ways. But every time I did the step before, it was in my head. It wasn't doing the step in my gut. This is the only way I found to do it in my gut, to be totally powerless and blameless. They go together for me. If you're powerless, you're also blameless. So I have to be blameless over binging and overeating. Then I didn't know how anybody could possibly recover if it was okay. And for me, it had to be okay because that's how I did it honestly for me. And um, I discovered that if I have to feel guilty about something, I was going to feel guilty about not, about not doing something I can do. For instance, if I want to binge, I don't want to be interrupted. So I can, I can call the phone. I mean, I can dial the phone and call somebody and then binge. It's like it's none of my business. And at the same time, I don't know why I'm absent, to be honest. It's just these things happen at the same time. First, the power of doing step one, and then I discovered that I had the disease of perfectionism. And in me, the disease of perfectionism was so powerful, it was like the conjoined twin of the disease of compulsive overeating. They were joined at the hip. If one twin got the flu, they both got the flu. If one twin took an aspirin, it would be in both circulation systems. I was just joined with the disease of perfectionism. So the only way for me to recover from the disease of compulsive overeating was for me to also be willing to recover from the disease of perfectionism. And the only way I have found then and now to recover from the disease of perfectionism is that when I'm imperfect, I have to keep it. Because every time I start over and start fresh, I'm practicing the disease of perfectionism. So one day I was absent at about three months. And it was the longest time I had been absent up to that day, because the second longest time was 27 days. And I was feeling really part of OA. I was grateful. I was grateful. I, everything was changing. I was buying clothes off the rack. I was just, I had it licked. And um, suddenly, it was daytime. It was on a weekend. And I was home by myself. And I decided or I just had to binge. I don't know why I had to binge. I just had to binge. Nothing would stop me from binging. I just was planning it and I was going to do it. I didn't want to break my absence, but I had to binge. I don't know why, but I just had to. But just for the hell of it, I decided to call somebody first and then binge. Because I was entitled to binge because I'm powerless over food and blameless, but I can dial the phone. So I dialed the phone at somebody who had shoved her phone number at me at a meeting, whom I did not know. 
So I called her and I said, hi, this is Nanette. I met you at X meeting and I want to binge. And she said, you must really want to recover because you called me. So up to that time, I didn't know I really wanted to recover. And I suddenly felt better. But that doesn't mean I wasn't going to binge. I just felt a little better. <laughs> and um, she said, when would you like to start binging? I mean, she didn't say, don't binge. What are you feeling? What's going on in your life? None of that. Just when would you like to start binging? And it was about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. I thought if I binge at 6, it would look more like dinner. <laughs> so I said 6. She says, can you wait until 6? I said, yes. She said, don't binge until 6. I said, okay. So then I had two hours to kill. The phone conversation was like two minutes. And so I fixed my bed, and I did the dirty dishes in the sink, and then I grabbed the TV guide, and I started to channel hop. And suddenly, my, my eyes hit the clock, and it was 6.15. I had been channel hopping for all that time and doing that other stuff, and I was 15 minutes past my binge start. And I hadn't started. I could have been binging for 15 minutes. <laughs> and I didn't. And suddenly I felt so great. I could have done it for those 15 minutes, and I didn't. And suddenly I didn't want to binge. I fixed dinner, which was a little hill on a plate. <laughs> I ate the entire hill. But the meal stopped at the edge of the plate. Do you know, it didn't travel onto the kitchen. The meal stopped. So I believe the miracle for us is that we stop three times a day, not just that we eat three times a day. So that was another day of abstinence. And um, I'll share another eating story. I was absent about nine months. It was approaching a year. I was so grateful. I loved the program. I was part of. And I was watching TV, and again, it was a weekend, and my, I was alone. And I thought, I wonder what's in the pantry. So I walked over the pantry, opened it, and there was a box of Nabisco crackers. And I said, oh, I didn't know that was there. So I said, oh, I'll have some. So I opened it up, and I took a grab of crackers. And I always folded it down with a clothespin. And, I, and so I folded it back, put a clothespin on, put the little slot in, you know, put it back, and went to the front of the TV, and I ate it. And it disappeared like that. It just was gone. I said, oh, it's gone. So I went back to the pantry the second time, did the whole thing, un unrolled it, dad took a grab, rolled it back, closed pin, put the slot back in the box, and, and it was gone again. And I thought, it's gone again. So I went back the third time, but the third time I wasn't in denial anymore. I was going to eat it, and I knew I was going to keep going back until it was gone. So I just took the box, put it in front of me, and I ate the whole thing. And every absence before this time was a secret diet. It was for the purpose of being Ms. Perfect, Ms. OA, and I wanted you to admire me and say what a great program she has. And so they were all secret diets, and the word absence meant diet. Somebody took a trip for 30 days of perfection. That's the word absence meant perfection to me. Somebody took a trip for 90 days of perfection. They took a candle for a year of perfection. And so I was doing meals at mealtime with life in between. And life in between included popcorn at the movies or fruit or something else. So, and to recover from the disease of perfectionism. So here I just consumed this entire Nabisco box. And I couldn't justify it. I couldn't say I'm recovering from the disease of perfectionism. I'm meals at mealtime with life in between. It just, none of it worked. 
but I didn't want to, like, ruin nine months of abstinence. And I didn't want to share it with anybody. But I'm sick of my secrets, so I had to share. So I called my sponsor eventually, because I knew what she was going to tell me. She was going to say, change your, you know, start fresh. And I asked her the big question, am I still abstinent? And she said something I didn't want to hear. She said, I can't tell you, you have to decide for yourself. So I kept asking her in different ways to see which way she was leaning. Because <laughs> for me, she was a voice of authority. If she said, yes, you've broken your abstinence, then I would have shown her what a good girl I was. I was following the OA rules. I would change my date and go on. If she said, no, you haven't broken your abstinence, then my, the voice of authority says, I haven't broken my abstinence, then I can go on. But she wouldn't tell me. But just before we hung up, she did say something. She said, ask God for the willingness to be rigorously honest. And when she said that, I knew that was the answer for me. So I wasn't willing to change my date yet, but I thought I'd get the willingness. So I practically chanted that prayer. Dear God, please give me the willingness to be rigorously honest. I kept chanting that. And Sunday night, I was by myself again, and suddenly I heard this voice that told, gave me an answer. And the voice was so clear and loud, I actually turned my head like this. You know, I just turned my head because I thought somebody was speaking. But I was by myself. And the voice was a, a split second, but this is what the voice said. If starting, if you change your abstinence state, if you think you're, you're back to square one, it would be a lie. If you want to be rigorously honest and not lie, you cannot change your abstinence state because no matter what this looks like, this isn't what it was. This is something else, no matter how it feels, what it looks like. And I couldn't believe that was the answer. It felt like, how can that be, you know? I'm a bad girl. And um, I didn't know God could be that generous. And again, I'm sick of my secrets. I didn't want to share this in a way because it seemed outrageous what I had done and not be a break in abstinence. And so finally I shared at a meeting, because that's where I need to share at a meeting level. I told them what happened. And after I told them, after the meeting, it felt like half the meeting came up to me. That's how it felt. And everybody was hugging me and saying, great, how wonderful it was. And even Doris said to me, <laughs> she says, you've got it. You really have got it. And I, I, don't, I didn't understand what that meant, but I was so grateful she wasn't mad. <laughs> and I didn't know people in this fellowship could be so loving that you still didn't throw stones at me and say you're a no you have a second class recovery because of what I did with this box of crackers so that was another day of abstinence so I have a tainted abstinence <laughs> And I had a change of attitude. Um, I want to share that uh, two things. I think I have five minutes, so I, have, I think I share two things in five minutes. One is that um, when I was newly abstinent, um, when I was practicing, I, my husband and I used to order the lar large pizza, and we'd, I'd have half and he had the other half. I'd have my half of the diet squirt and eat it. And... <laughs> In recovery, I somehow knew you can't eat exactly the same way you eat as when you're practicing, but I wasn't willing to give up pizza, and I wasn't willing to give up a lot of pizza. 
So I said I would have one slice less than a half. I would abstain from that one slice. And um, they cut it in the restaurant, they deliver it, and I will have one slice less than a half. And that slice can go in the garbage disposal, my husband can have it, I can have it for part of lunch the next day, whatever. Just not that meal. And for the first year I was in recovery, I had one slice less than a half. We ate pizza maybe once a month, maybe twice a month. The second year something happened where I was able to eat one slice more than a fourth. I don't know why. Sometimes one slice more than a fourth is exactly the same as one slice less than a half. <laughs> but every now and then it was less. And the third year I stopped at a quarter. I don't know why I stopped at a quarter, but I stopped at a quarter of a pizza. And then um, the fifth year I sometimes had, uh, depending on my spiritual condition, sometimes one slice less than a half and sometimes a fourth. And today it's evolved to the point where I just have uh, vegetarian pizza with no, no cheese on my half. And I have one slice. Before it was like, if no cheese, what's the point of having pizza? But I really enjoy that bread and that potato, that tomato stuff and the veggies. And so that was good enough for me. And I believe that I had to have as much pizza as I had and claim the recovery that I had in abstaining from that one slice for me to slide into another gear. I didn't intend it. I still allow myself one slice more, less than a half. I still allow myself, but I almost never go there. And I'm just, I'll just end by sharing something, how I, how I perceive my recovery. I see my recovery like a forest, and the trees in the forest are days of abstinence. And there are enough trees in this forest to make the forest a forest. Some of these trees are sequoias, and they're oaks, and they're Christmas trees, and they're firs. They're just wonderful, healthy trees. And some of these trees are tree stumps. They're dead. Lightning hit it. Maggots crawling through them. And if you hike over there, you'll find a grove of tree stumps. But if I only look at the trees, I'll miss what's there, because there's more in my forest than trees. There are lakes and rivers and waterfalls and California poppies and blue jays. And I don't look at a real forest and say, oh my God, there's a tree stump here. Let's trash this forest and go on to the fresh one. Because it has nothing to do with me. It is God-given and God-made. And if I'm to believe that my recovery is God-given and God-made, then I have to accept everything that's there, no matter what my personal opinion is. So I have this rule that if I think I've broken my abstinence, I don't make a decision of whether I have or haven't for three to six months. And at the end of three to six months, I will decide whether I've broken my abstinence. But just in case I haven't, I keep on keeping on and staying abstinent one day at a time. And that's why I have 22 years, because to be honest, I never remember when that three to six months hits. <laughs> And so I have 22 years of completely tainted abstinence. So thank you for letting me share. Our second speaker is Susan from San. Sorry, I'm having trouble with the mic. San Rafael, and she will also speak for 25 minutes. Hi, my name is Susan Berland. I'm a compulsive overeater. Well, I could just say ditto and sit down. 
Um, I was really excited when I heard that I was going to be sharing um, on the same podium with Nanette, uh, and I, because I know that our stories are similar and we share a lot in common. Um, so I'll just tell you that I attended my first Overeaters Anonymous meeting on August 2nd, 1966. That was almost 39 years ago. I was three or two, <laughs> plus or minus a few years. Um, the number that I was, the age that I was, keeps getting younger and younger, and before you know it, it'll be minus. But, um, <laughs> uh, now, I was 17 years old, and um, I didn't come here because I wanted to um, stop eating. I didn't know what a compulsive overeater was. Um, I was nowhere near ready to stop eating, but I did want to lose weight. Um, and the weight that I weighed then is probably my goal weight today. But it's a difference between being 56 and 17, so uh, that, that makes a big difference. Uh, it took me 10 years to get my abstinence. Uh, my abstinence date is October 12, 1976, so I've been abstaining 28 years. Um, and you'll have to forgive me if um, some of what I share is redundant to what Nanette says, because I, I said my story is very similar. Um, my disease also, you know, is, is a conjoined twin with perfectionism. And when I came into OA, there were two kinds of meetings. There were the moderate meal meetings, and then there were the gray sheet meetings. And the first meeting that I went to was the gray sheet meeting. Um, and I always like, um, since I've been coming for such a long time, when I go to a big meeting like this, to ask how many people don't know what the gray sheet is. It's not as popular to say that anymore because we've got it back in a, in a form or another. But is there anyone here who doesn't know what the gray sheet is? Nobody. Hey, that's been a long time, just one person. Okay. Well, now the dignity of choice is back as a pamphlet. More people know what it is. It's a, it's a low-carb, uh, not a low-carb. It's a, yeah, I guess it's what we used to call it, high-protein, low-carbohydrate, weight and measured food plan. That was printed, the last paper it was printed on was gray, so it was called gray sheet. It had been on many other colors of paper. And, um, and that was what was handed to me, and that kind of set me off on a 10-year um, quest for perfection. And because, you, because it was written on a piece of paper, if you followed it exactly, you could do it perfectly. And because the, the um, attitude in the meetings was if you didn't do it perfectly, you were not abstaining. So if it called for a cup of string beans, and let me tell you, you could probably, if you knew me, pack two cups into one cup, but you could really, you know, if you were, I was young, I was strong, I could really stuff it in there. But if you put an extra tablespoon, and I'm not even talking a measured tablespoon, I'm just talking the kind you pull out of the drawer tablespoon, on top of it, that was breaking your abstinence, literally, not being facetious. So what I used to do is if I, you know, my, my binge food of choice at that time was um, Vandy Camp's chocolate chip cookies. That was my favorite thing. So if that's what I really wanted to do, I couldn't just be honest and do it. I would eat that extra tablespoon of string beans, tell my sponsor, she'd say you broke your abstinence, and then I'd have an excuse to go buy the cookies. So I, you know, I was on and off trying to do that abstinence um, at, at some level or another for about eight years, and, um, and I could never do it well enough. And I've never, you know, a lot of people come in here and say, you know, how they, you know, gained and lost hundreds of pounds and they knew how to diet. I was not one who did know how to diet, and I've never been a successful dieter, and every 
my experience has been that every diet I've ever been on, for the most part, I've gained weight. And I, don't, I know there are other people like me because I've talked to them, but when I try to follow something that's written on a piece of paper and I get the diet mentality, which is a, really a, um, a head game for me, I go into instant deprivation. It doesn't matter how much food is on it or how wonderful or yummy it is. It sets me off. And so I usually end up gaining weight instead of losing weight. So that's kind of what the gray sheet did for me. So that's um, the long and short of it. So where am I going with that? So help me out here, God. <laughs> so I guess my, my I love the um, the kind of sub-theme of this meeting, was, which is win with the stickers. And I, so I was thinking, well, how does one get to be a long-timer? And... Um, my friend who's in the room, uh, when we read the topic, which was um, barnacles, said, barnacles, aren't those the things that you have to scrape off the bottom of the ship? That's me. So, um, uh, and I think it's kind of interesting because uh, I came to OA with my sister. She, uh, she brought me, or she actually didn't bring me. She told me I had to go. And um, my mother and I attended our first meeting together. And my sister was um, a very successful gray sheeter. Her name was on the front of the gray sheet. Um, Maxine was her sponsor, and my sister's name was right underneath Maxine's. There's available sponsors to, you know, at the Van Nuys Wednesday night meeting. And um, neither my mother nor my sister come to OA anymore. And so, what is so? Why is it that they don't come anymore and I do? Can you guess? Because I've kept coming back. And in spite of the um, ten years of struggle, and and my experience was not the same as as um, what Nanette shared. There was uh, a lot of I felt a lot of shame, and I'm, now I'm starting to wonder, how, you know, and, I, and I, I suspect that more of it was projected from me than was projected onto me, um, but there were a lot of people, in those days we were trying to do it like AA, because that was our, our main model, and there was a lot of, you know, uh, if you're in your first 30 days of abstinence, raise your hand, so God, I was doing that a lot. And there were people in program back then that would hang up on you if you called them after you binged because they didn't want to talk to a wet drunk because that's what they would hear in AA meetings. And I don't really think it's quite the same. It's close, but it's not quite the same. And, you know, and so that, you know, if you would go to a meeting after binging, there were people that, not everybody, of course, those are the people that I always went to. <laughs> They didn't want to talk to you or whatever. And the, the, the last time I broke my abstinence, um, which was, I kind of laughed when Terrell shared last night about his two pieces of toast because mine was three Oreo cookies. Um, the last time that I, you know, came back and started over again, which is what it really was, there, there, really, there was a woman that, she doesn't come anymore, but, and that ought to tell me something, that, that actually literally turned and walked away from me. I, I walked up to her, and she turned around and walked away. And so there was some of that going on, um, but there was that wasn't all of what it was about. Um, at any rate, uh, what changed for me, uh, you know, it's hard to tell my whole story of 39 years in, in 25 minutes. Those first 10 years was a lot of coming in, going out. I, I, I also went to AA meetings because they were, in fact, you know, the granddaddy program, and they knew better. And besides, they had better food than you. And uh, they had any food, and you didn't. And there were many of us who would stand around the, the um, donut table because most of us would say ate there in AA meetings talking about how OA didn't work while you're shoving the food in your mouth. And um, 
and I wasn't, and I am an alcoholic, so I mean, I had a reason to go there too. So um, there's, a, and, you know, I also went to the other program for friends and families of alcoholics. We have a lot in common. We should, we should share more. Um, uh, I finally, what finally happened that night that I ate those three Oreo cookies is I, I called my friend, and this is what the, how the perfectionism got to me. And, uh, and you know. I had been on the intergroup board, and I'd been abstaining for a while, and what she said to me, my, she, was, she wasn't still as my oldest and closest friend, and said, aren't you sick and tired of starting over? This was after 10 years of starting over and over and over, and the starting over was always about wanting to be perfect, wanting to do it just right, and so much of it was wanting to do it just right so that you would like me, so that you'd expect me. I didn't really get the third tradition. You know, I didn't really understand that I had a place here, that I had a seat in one of these rooms no matter what. Um, I wanted to do it right. Uh, I wanted to do it right so I could feel good about myself or something. I'm not really sure. When she said that to me that night, aren't you sick and tired of starting over? I think I made a decision that I wasn't ever going to start over again. And um, that that was it. I had had it. And I, didn't, I don't think I really quite could have verbalized the perfection thing at that point. I didn't really put it together. But that, I think, was the night when I really understood that um, I couldn't be perfect. And that if I was going to ever abstain on any long-term basis, that I had to understand that I was a compulsive overeater. And that sometimes, as a compulsive overeater, I was going to use food. And that didn't mean that I was giving myself permission to binge. It doesn't mean that I could do anything I wanted and say I was abstaining. So I always like to say that, that people don't misunderstand what I mean by that. But that I didn't have to be perfect at it and that I was going to make mistakes and that there was a difference between slipping, that see, there didn't always used to be, and breaking one's abstinence and that my bottom, you know, that I had a bottom line, you know, and that I wasn't going to be running, doing garbage runs, eating food out of the garbage, you know, going to the grocery store and buying three bags of groceries and bringing it home and eating it and hiding, in, you know, in my car, in my room, whatever, all the things that I've been doing all of my life. And that, you know, that's what I meant when I said I didn't have to be perfect. And so, you know, I've done many of the things that Nanette shared with you in abstinence that she's done in abstinence. I've done them too. And, um, and I think about sometimes, I think, well, is this really honest? But then I think, you know, where I've come from where I was 28 years ago to where I am today wouldn't be possible if every time I made a mistake, I had to start over. First of all, I don't think I'd be standing here. I don't think I'd be in this room. I don't think I'd be in this program. And God knows where I'd be if I wasn't in this program. Um, everything I know and everything I love and I think all of who I am is because of this program. And somebody shared at one of the workshops I was at that um, – all the people I know, oh, it was my friend, all the people that I know and that are in my life are people that I know except for the people I'm related to since I've been in OA. Um, I don't have any friends that go back further than, than this program. And um, I now have friends that are not in OA, which is, it took me many, many, many years before I could do that. Many. Lots and lots. Um, and many of my friends that are not in OA are in other 12-step programs. But I actually um, am having, I'm having uh, my husband and I are celebrating our 25th wedding anniversary in two weeks, and we're having a big party. And outside of my family, 
I would say 95% of the people that are going to be there, of my friends, are people from OA or I met through another 12-step program. And, um, and, a, and of, the, of all of them, 90% of them are OA friends. And, and, and of them, probably 90% I know from doing service. <laughs> so, I mean, it's just an amazing, it's an amazing gift that I've been given. And I sometimes wonder, I ask myself, why me? You know, um, why me and not my sister, not my mother? And it's because um, I guess I kept coming back. And so how come I kept coming back? I asked myself that, too. You know, all the years I was growing up, I always wanted this big family. Or, and my family was very um, geographically spread out. And I remember when I was little, but besides the fact that I never felt like I fit in anywhere, I belonged anywhere, I always felt really different. Uh, I, I remember wanting to have this kind of, um, I don't know how to describe it, there was a family down the street that had, there were lots of cousins and, you know, they used to get together for Christmas and there was always, besides lots of presents, which I always was jealous of, um, <laughs> but there was always lots of um, energy in, in their house and there was just always this feeling of like people caring about each other and this big extended family, which I never had. And I think that that's some of the reason that I've come back to OA all of these years is that that is what I have here is this big extended family. And so my family extends, you know, I live in San Rafael, which is north of San Francisco. And so my family extends, you know, um, outwards into the Bay Area. And then it extends outward, you know, down to Los Angeles because I started OA here. And I did most of my years, I've been in, in the Bay Area for 18 years, and I did, so I did most of my years down here. And then uh, because of the service that I've done, my family extends around the world, which is just an amazing thing. So if you think doing service doesn't give you a lot of gifts, think again. You know, come to world service. You meet people that you can make lifelong friends with that live all around the world. It's just an amazing thing. I was in Israel in um, March, and I saw two OA friends while I was there that I met many years ago at World Service. And it's just a, it's just a remarkable, it's a remarkable thing, um, to, you know, to have that. So I think that's a lot of the reason that I kept coming back. I think another reason I kept coming back is God is really smart, much smarter than I, and I couldn't afford to go anywhere else. <laughs> and, I mean, it sounds funny, but it's really true. I mean, I, I married my first husband, and uh, we had two children. I got divorced. I had no skills. I had no money. I was living on um, a very small salary and welfare. So when I was, you know, when I was ready to, like, really deal with this issue, well, I, I came back to OA because, one, I knew I had no place else to go. And, and like I said, I couldn't afford anything. And people say OA is free. It's not free. I want to just clear that up. OA is not free. It's nowhere in our literature does it say it's free. We're self-supporting through our own voluntary contributions. But I knew, whereas, you know, we don't have dues, I knew that I, no one was going to ask me to put in any more than I could afford. And in those days, it was a quarter in the basket. Today, I'm really grateful that I can put more money in the basket when it comes around. Um, so, and I knew that part of, you know, the, the being self-supporting meant that I could do service, and that would be part of how I could be self-supporting in a way. So I'm really grateful. I mean, I didn't think that being um, poor and living on welfare and struggling would be a gift or would provide me with that kind of a gift, but it did. And um, I came back to OA that last time I came back, which was in 1974. I was heading out for my Tuesday night AA meeting, which was in Westwood. 
and I ended up at Crescent Heights and Olympic. And I don't remember intending to go there, but that's where I ended up. And I've never, you know, left since. Um, the other thing I liked about this reading is it talked about hope. And um, hope is my middle name. I was telling somebody that recently. My name is Susan Hope. And I hated that name growing up because it was weird. No one ever heard of anybody called Hope. Um, would you mind handing me my water? It's getting dry. Thank you so much. But since coming to OA, it's really kind of fun to have Hope as your middle name. And, uh, and it really is true that when I walked in the doors of OA, I mean, no matter what has happened here, that's the one thing that's always been um, kept alive is hope. And I remember in um, when my kids were little and my children were young, I remember going through um, a lot of fears. I was very, I was afraid of many, many things and a lot of these awful things that, that could happen to me. And, and I, almost all of them happened, <laughs> kind of how life is. And what's interesting, and I think about that now, is I, I survived them all. I got stronger from every one of them, and I learned, and it, and um, and I and, and it allowed me at times to be a message of hope for other people. So I think that's part of what's in our in our big book, um, being a message of hope. So I don't always understand why God puts things in my path or why things happen to me in my life. Uh, I just uh, trust. I just have to trust that I am where I'm supposed to be. And so here I am, now it's all these years later, and um, my life is in places that I never could have imagined. So I think sometimes, okay, when I got, got here when I was 17, <laughs> if you had asked me, okay, what, where would you like to be in 20 years, or where would you like to be in 40 years? Um, well, I don't know that I, at 17 I would have, really could have been capable of even imagining. Um, 40 years seemed like I would be so old. And... Um, and even now, it kind of <laughs> seems that way. Um, <laughs> yeah, and you're still younger than I am, Carl. Um, but, you know, what, what, what I find so interesting is, you know, even however long ago it was, I would have shortchanged myself. Whatever things I had wished for myself, when I think about what I wished for myself, no matter at what stage in my life or whatever future stage, I never could have wished for myself um, my life as good as it is. And so it kind of lets me know um, a, lot, a, a few different things about God or about my higher power that, you know, God has things in store for me. Boy, this is really good for me to know. That God has things in store for me that really are beyond my wildest dreams. That God is taking care of me in ways that I can't always see and I can't always imagine and I sure don't always understand. Um, that my vision is very limited. I remember... Um, this was about 22 years ago. I was in the hospital, and I was flat on my back. And um, I, could, I, was in the, I was, uh, couldn't get out of bed. I was flat on my back for three weeks. And I remember this kind of realization I had that um, my analogies or, or metaphors are more like mountains than, um, than the forest. I have the same kind of feeling. My recovery is like going up a mountain. But at that point, the mountain was like, I realized that I'm like on a mountain. So, you know, if a mountain goes up like this, I'm on the side of a mountain, which means I can only see out, 
you know, so I have a very, this, this way. So I can only see this limited amount, no matter how high, you know, and I'm only a little bit up on the mountain, so I can only see out a little bit. But God's way up there on the top of the mountain. So God has the whole 360 degree view and is much higher can, so can see much better. And um, at that point, I realized that I actually have two higher powers, or I have two concepts of higher power. And one is that big one, that big God that's up there at the top of the mountain that has that 360-degree view and can see the whole big picture. Um, but having that, if that was my sole um, concept of God, it really wouldn't work for me because it's too big. But it, it kind of lets, that's the one that I know kind of sees what I can't see. But I also have this other higher power, that's little teeny one that lives right in here. The big one, the one that's up there, that's the higher power I talk to about my kids when they're struggling or, you know, the problems in the world or whatever that might be worrying me or bothering my sister, my mother, whatever, all that other stuff. But this one, the little one that lives here in my heart, that one I don't have to share with anybody. That's my own private higher power. That's the one, that's the still small voice. You know, that's the one that's mine. That's available 24 hours a day. Is never too busy. You know, when I got here, I knew there was a God, but I was just too insignificant. You know, that my problems were just not important enough or significant enough for God to be worried about. Certainly not my food. Um, but this God that lives in here doesn't, isn't busy doing anything else, just kind of waiting around for me. And um, unfortunately, this God that lives in here waits around a lot. Um, I don't connect as much as I could. But this is the God that, you know, lives inside and is available to me 24 hours a day. All I have to do is stop and ask. And I get instant answers or instant connection. If I just give myself 30 seconds, not even 30, 10 seconds, to be quiet and let God's voice come in, it's there. Because that's the God that's available to me all the time. So that's, and the other, and I'll just share my other mountain analogy, is I, I see my recovery light going up a mountain. But that mountain I see as being inverted, so it's wider at the bottom. And Oh, I did it backwards. Wider at the top. That's it. Wider at the top and narrower at the bottom. I'm, the hand motion's right. I'm just saying it wrong. So it's going that way. So that as I go up the mountain, I may come back to the same spot, but it takes longer to get there, and I'm at a higher perspective. So it's kind of like my character defects. I'll come back. I'll think I've cured one or has gone away. I've discovered my character defects never leave. Sometimes, I mean, it may be different than what it says in some of the books, but that's my experience. They kind of go into the background while other ones take their place. <laughs> Our ideal with other ones is really what it is. And eventually I come back around to that spot again. That character defect rears its ugly head again. But I'm at a higher perspective than I was before. So I see it from a different place. And then I keep moving on up the mountain, and it takes longer to get back there again. And, but, again, I'm at a higher perspective. That's been my experience, and I, I guess I feel like I get that experience because I've been around long enough. Um, I feel like I have the gift of retrospect. Um, what I'll, I'll end with, and I, I really say this because it's really true, is no matter what negative, positive experiences I've had in my life in this program, I feel like I have been so blessed. I am so blessed with the people that are in my life. Um, I could never have imagined that I'd have so much love in my life. It's all I ever really wanted. It's all I ever really wanted was to feel um, loved by and loved for people in my life. 
My blessings, when I list my blessings, it always starts with people. And I look around this room and I see so many people that I love in this room. And uh, no matter what else I could have done in my life, I could have never had the friends and the acceptance and the unconditional love that I have, that I have found as I have from people that are in this room today. And the other gifts that are in my life are just so beyond belief that I always like to say God has just blessed me with so much. And like I said before, I'm so much, I've got so much more than I could have wished or hoped or imagined that I can't wait to see what else is coming. And yes, I'm going to be 57 this year in August. And, um, and like, I think, I, you know, we have longevity in my family, so I'm going to live for a long time. And I feel like God, God has so many more gifts for me, and I just can't wait to see what they are and, uh, and to share them. And I feel so lucky, and I'm so grateful, and I want to thank you because I wouldn't have them without you. God bless you. Okay, we will now have 10 minutes of questions from the Ask It Basket. And, um, okay. This one wasn't marked who it's for, but it says, um, I've been in LA since August of 1988 and have been maintaining a 35 pound weight loss, but I don't have an abstinence date due to perfectionism starting over. How can I pick? An abstinent date. I don't know how to do that. Um, I mean, it would just—it wouldn't be from experience I'd be sharing right now. It's just um, speculation. Um, I don't know how to answer that. So um, I'm not going to. So I'm sorry. I mean, I can speculate as well as anybody, but I just don't have an experience of choosing an abstinent date. So whichever one that works for you is fine. I mean, I don't really care. Um, <laughs> that doesn't mean I don't care about you, but the date is um, insignificant. But the date is good to have just to remind you of how far you've come. It's not like... Okay, I'll just share this one thing. Um, I didn't, it took me a while to take my first 30-day chip because I was afraid if I took that chip, I would, like, lose the abstinence and then have the embarrassment of having to take it again at another time. So I just didn't take it until I had the mindset of this chip is to remind me of how far I've come. So I didn't take it at 30 days. I took it maybe at 40 days. But when I took it, I knew it, I wasn't going to fall on my face and have to take another one because it was only a reminder because before I thought of it as an award, like the Academy Awards, but now it was like just a reminder. So that chip became a reminder and I could, I could take it.
I don't have any experience on that either, but um, I have a suggestion if that's an okay thing to do, and, and that is to do a lot of praying. And um, I was hoping you actually would come back to that thing you did with your with your box of crackers, but um, which is is really just to talk to your sponsor and um, and to do a lot of praying about it and see what God has to say. And if you're interested, I have a really great tool for connecting with God, which is dialogue writing, and I'd be happy to share it with you afterwards. Okay, this is a question for Susan. Um, What was it that kept you coming back all these years? I think I already answered that. Um, I really didn't have any other place to go. And uh, it took me many, many years to make friends here, so I couldn't say it was that <laughs> at first. But uh, there there was just something here that kept me coming back. I guess, you know, there, there's a reason that I'm here, and um, and that's because God wants me to be here. But I think pretty much answered that with um, during my share. Um, but the other thing I would say about that is is doing service, and that really does keep you coming back. And that most meetings uh, have service positions, whether you're abstaining or not. There's some for, that you have abstinence requirements, and hopefully have uh, service positions that don't have abstinence requirements. And that's really um, helped me to keep coming back as well. For either or both of you, what have you eaten for your last three meals? Or just give an example of the food and amounts of food you regularly eat. Last three meals. Um, Just before coming here, I had a tuna sandwich at the Daily Grill, which took me an hour to get because I had to wait for a half hour and then another half hour to get the thing. Um, I only ate, um, it was a sandwich cut in half. I had three halves and one side of the tuna. I ate the lettuce and tomato and I, I had a choice of stuff like fruit, juicing potatoes or coleslaw and I took fruit and a Diet Coke. And then the, the the night before, see, the other this morning I had breakfast at the hotel breakfast buffet place, and I uh, had uh, hash browns and half cup of hash browns eyeballed, and uh, probably one scrambled egg, one of those little pancakes with like a teaspoon of uh, maple syrup. I had a Danish, I had watermelon, uh, strawberry, and pineapple. And um, the night before, I went to a Mexican restaurant, and I had uh, Camarones Rancheros, no cheese and no cilantro. And uh, they they gave me cilantro in one of the salsa things, so I had to give it to my husband, every last cilantro bit, because I hate cilantro. And then I had two corn tortillas and uh, Diet Coke. So that's what last three meals. Okay. Okay, uh, do you experience ups and downs, and how do you keep your program up even when you're not? 
Yes. <laughs> I'm still human. Um, uh, let's see. For example, uh, Friday before I left, my husband had a fight because he yelled at me and I yelled at him and then I cried because <sighs> I've not been getting enough sleep. Um, and um, I, I don't know about keeping your program up even when I'm not. I mean, the pro, you know, your program is my program is my program. So I think it's about, you know, keeping things, you know, going to meetings, doing the whatever it is you do, you keep doing what you do. I'm not saying it very well, but at least Carl understands because he's nodding. But <laughs> say that again. Oh, if it worked yesterday, do it today. That's not that doesn't always work for me, but it's, most of the time it does. But you know, usually um, when when things are really when things are bad or struggling, it's uh, you pick up a few extra things like a few more meetings, a few more phone calls, um, a little extra service. You know, finding someone who needs you. You know, getting out of myself. That kind of that kind of thing. How do you keep complacency from creeping into your program? These are hard questions. Um, I don't, um, I'm often complacent, I mean, to be honest, I'm often complacent and I'll eat more and then I'll feel bad and then that'll trigger me to do something extra. Um, before I eat more, I probably will not be triggered to do something. I'll probably com be complacent until my food tells me that I can't stay on that path. Um, so the truth is I'm often complacent and I don't have any magic that's why the food is a barometer sometimes. It'll let me know. And lots of times I wish that I would know before the, the food gets big, but I don't know it. The food lets me know. And that's one of the tools of the food for me. Okay, this is the last question. Um, what did you want to say but forgot or ran out of time? <laughs> well, there's always three pitches. The one you think you're going to make, the one you do make, and the one you didn't make. And it's always the one that I didn't make that eats at me. And uh, one of the things I meant to say is that I'm Chinese-American. And I wanted to say that. I'm from West Hollywood, California. And I wanted to say that because somebody heard me on a tape once and thought I was a blonde. <laughs> <laughs> and I told myself, every time I get recorded, I'm going to mention that I'm Chinese, ethnically Chinese. So that's what I wanted to say. Thank you. I actually found a couple more. It, it says, um, do you know how much you both are loved and appreciated? You are. <laughs>
And this is for both of you. How do you handle getting bored with your foods? And there's a big explanation point. I don't usually get bored with my food, which is kind of interesting. Um, because my food plan has changed so many times over the years. Um, but there are certain foods I don't eat anymore because I ate them so repeatedly, like cottage cheese. There was a, when I was hypoglycemic, there was a period of time I was hypoglycemic. I ate cottage cheese as part of my food plan twice a day, every day, for eons, and I can't stand the sight of it. You know, and so, you know, I know people in program that, like, they eat the same breakfast every day over and That would just drive me batty. Um, so I don't tend to do that. I try to do variety so I don't get bored with my food. I like food. I enjoy eating. I like the taste of it. And I wish I could afford to hire a cook because I don't have – I don't like to cook and I don't have time to cook, but I really like to eat. So, <laughs> you know, so when you don't like to cook and you don't have time to cook, it's really difficult to come up with variety. But um, my husband and I do go out a little bit. That helps a little bit. And then, you know, just mixing it up. Oh, we're out of time. Okay. We will now have open sharing. We will have time for three shares. If you've already shared at another workshop, please give others a chance before you come forward. Um, limit your share to three minutes, stay on the topic, and sign the tape release form after you share. Hi, I'm Teresa, compulsive overeater. And, um, I'm going to make a plug for the boutique. I was chilly when I came into this room, and I went out and I bought this at the boutique for $3. <laughs> it's kept me warm. <laughs> it really, it was a deal. Um, secondly, I was the person who uh, wrote that first question um, that I've been in uh, OA for, since 1988, and I came in uh, working the gray sheet which I never could do perfectly, so I was continually starting over. And I am the kind of perfectionist that I want to be to do it perfect. And um, I've been battling this for a long, long time. And I think, thanks to you, thanks for your answers because. Um, I'm really going to reevaluate. I'm I'm working the steps again with a sponsor, and I'm really going to evaluate. I don't want to start over again. I'm I'm sick of starting over. So, thanks for letting me share. Hi, my name is Barbie, and I'm a compulsive eater. Hi, everybody. Thank you both so much for your shares. I am. Um, I I think the reason I came to this conference, this convention, was to hear your shares. And um, I've been having a really hard time. Um, my sponsor of one year, who I called every day, someone imperfectly, but every day, um, let me go. And. Um, 
that she had said that she didn't feel any connection to me and that we were on different spiritual paths. And I really think a lot of it was that my food, um, even though for me it was healthier than I've ever eaten, um, and I was losing weight more rapidly than I have in the three years I've been in program, it wasn't perfect for her. And um, I really have been in what somebody, I heard somebody share, they called it the oh fuck it stage of program. <laughs> and, I, you know, I'd get up and I'd be time for a meal and I was like, well, you know, my sponsor dumped me, oh fuck it, you know, and then it would be time for the next meal and I was like, oh, my sponsor dumped me, oh fuck it. Um, I'm not supposed to say that on here, am I? Sorry. Um, <laughs> I apologize to the FCC or whoever it is. <laughs> but um, I really need program. I really, 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 really need program. And for the three years I've been in program, it has changed my life in so many ways and has really helped me survive. I don't think I would have survived without it. And so um, coming here today and hearing the two of you speak um, really helped me feel like there is a place for me in program. And um, so thank you very much. I'm Maxie, compulsive overeater from, from San Diego. I'm in the program 28 years, and I don't know why abstinence has always been easy for me. It's been a gift. And abstinence has to be the most important thing in my life. I only came in to get people in my family off my back and to lose the weight. And I've lost 45 pounds and kept it off for 28 years. I wanted to go to sleep and wake up thin. I just couldn't do it. I could always lose weight. Anybody can lose weight, but keep it off. When my husband was alive, this man never went on a diet. I always thought, why don't you have willpower? And I always believe, don't say you're never going to do things. Today, I weigh and measure my food because of health problems. And this is the only thing that works. And sponsoring is a wonderful tool. And also, I met such wonderful people. And if I haven't been in this program, I never would have. And thank God, the scale doesn't run my life. When I liked what the scale said, I had a good day. And it's all because of this program. And if you go through this, and if you don't do the steps, and you don't write the fourth step, and get rid of the garbage, I believe you will overeat. And the person that we harmed the most was ourselves. We, we didn't know and we did the best we could. I didn't know that I was a compulsive overeater until coming to the program. And I thank you all, and I thank you.
it's uh, now time to close the workshop. I'd like to thank um, Nanette and Susan for leading a great meeting today. Please join me in a moment of silence followed by the third step prayer. Yeah, I'm just taking a moment of silence.